3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. We are in the studio with Spike and with Leela. Good morning, Spike. Good morning, Leela. Morning. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing today? <laughs> yeah, I'm actually, you know what? I'm okay. Very in good. In a good way. <laughs> I love it. How about you, Spike? Apart, well, after... <laughs> I had I had a bit of a um, bad afternoon after reading the Woolworths profits. That oh was a gosh. really that was a real that, that really uh, took the wind. Yeah. Out of me, yeah. Although yeah. there are now reports that shoplifting has increased <laughs> both Woolworths and Coles, so nature finds a way. Yeah, and and also <laughs> um, the I don't know if any of you guys saw the protest in Queensland. will pro a march onto the steps of the Queensland Parliament, tr- drawing attention to what they said was youth crime mm. in Queensland. So people that won't come out for inequality, uh-huh. for climate change, for anything else, as soon, you know, these are the people yeah. that, yeah. They don't come out for black death and poverty, no. but they uh, come out uh, for a crackdown on youth crime. Yeah. Absolutely shameful. Yeah. Um, maybe we will jump into the rundown of what we've got on the show today. So um, I'll kick it off. Um, so I'll kick it off. Uh, so first off, members of Pacific Climate Warriors, Mary Masalina Harm and Guy Ratani are joining us to reflect on their campaigning for Pacific climate justice and a fossil-free future within and outside of last week's Labor National Conference, which was held in Mianjin, Brisbane. So really excited to chat with them both about um, those actions. Uh, also have Naomi Hodgson, a founding member of Rising Tide, the movement of civil resistance for climate defence, joins us to discuss the Rising Tide's campaign for disruption to end climate destruction. And after that, we're going to be joined by Jay Coonan from Anti-Poverty Centre and anti-poverty advocate Alex in the studio to unpack the centre's recently released report, Punishment for Profit, How Private Providers Became the Only Winners in Australia's Cruel Employment Services System, which was published with support from GetUp last week. And finally, we're going to hear from Australian Services Union member and Brotherhood of St. Lawrence employee Alex Kakafikas. Uh, who will be in to talk to 3CR about the 24-hour industrial action taken by workers against the not-for-profit on Thursday, the 14th of August. BSL workers are campaigning to improve their enterprise agreement. Workers are unhappy with the current pay and reproductive leave entitlements. This is the first time in 93 years that workers at the not-for-profit have taken strike action. Yeah, huge. Yeah. Um, it's massive. It's absolutely <laughs> massive. Well, we might head to a CSA and come back to you with news headlines. Awesome. You are what you eat. And you are what, what you eat. And you're even Local Food what, Connections what interviews with food producers, backyard growers and urban farmers. Join us every Sunday morning at 10am 
on 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial, on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Local Food Connections, a show about the importance of local food in sustainable communities. From dust to dust, you gotta just trust that upper crust and maintain that good terrain from whence you came. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 24th of August. Recently released NAPLAN results indicate that one in ten students are not meeting NAPLAN standards in literacy and numeracy, and students with high levels of socioeconomic disadvantage are even less likely to be keeping up. This year's NAPLAN test was the first held entirely online in Term 1, with tougher proficiency levels and a new measurement scale. The time series data set was also fully reset with new testing methods, meaning 2023 results can't be compared with previous years. Under the reform system, students are assessed against four levels of proficiency, exceeding, strong, developing, and needs additional support. Quote, with expectations set at a higher level than in previous years, the new reporting is showing those areas where we need to focus our efforts, end quote. The Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority Chief Executive David de Carvalho said, quote, the results also continue to highlight the educational disparities of students from non-urban areas, Indigenous Australian heritage, and those with low socio-educational backgrounds, end quote. The disparity in outcomes between students based on their geography and backgrounds was, quote, in line with expectations, end quote. <laughs> quote, we certainly hope results will improve, which to a large extent will depend on how ministers and education ministers decide to respond to results, end quote, De Carvalho said. Some 1.3 million students in about 9,400 schools participated in this year's tests. Following the move online, participation rates picked up after a decline over COVID, increasing two percentage points to 93%. The NAPLAN results are a precursor to the Program for International Student Assessment, PISA study, due to be released at the end of the year. The most recent test, which measured the performance of 15-year-olds on mathematics, science and reading, was the worst test result Australia has recorded. Also in news, funding cuts to specialist teachers by the Department of Education have been reversed after receiving widespread backlash from community members as well as experts in disability education. The cuts were proposed earlier in the year as an attempt to meet federal budget targets and would have resulted in at least 325 workers losing jobs. In particular, the cuts were set to impact the visiting teacher service, reducing the number of workers providing the specialised support program from 118 to just 32 workers. The Visiting Teacher Service provides tailored support and advocacy for students with disabilities, both in and outside the classroom, assisting families with school-related matters. Crucially, visiting teachers assist liaison between students and teachers, supporting students with disabilities to voice their needs in the classroom. To the relief of advocates and community alike, Education Minister Natalie Hutchins announced the decision to reverse the cuts on Tuesday. The cuts proposed would have reduced frontline disability support for children at a time when there are already major shortages of workers in the field. However, major barriers remain for people in the education system who experience disability. Last week, the Children and Young People with Disability Australia, or CYDA, released three national surveys 
finding that school systems at each level have failed to provide adequate support for children with neurodivergence or additional access needs. The CYDA chief, Sky Kokoschka Moore, says, quote, teachers are overwhelmed and without su- sufficient support, resource or training, end quote, and this report should serve as a wake-up call for government to examine where support is urgently needed. And in other news this week, Woolworths posts record profits. The country's biggest supermarket chain, Woolworths, has recorded a dramatic lift in margins for its Australian food business to well over pre-pandemic levels, underpinning a strong profit result in a cost-of-living crisis. The company's net profit lifted 4.6% to $1.62 billion for the full financial year, while overall sales hit $64.29 billion, derived from its Australian and New Zealand supermarket operations, as well as a discount chain Big W. Woolworths Chief Executive Brad Banducci said, Supermarket margins were not solely related to groceries, which upgrades to supply chains and improved business operations helping the group. Uh, it's not a direct result of, of food inside supermarkets, he said. The most important thing we need to do is provide value for our customers, says Banducci. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, wow. It's hard to read this with a straight face. Uh, okay. The value of its Australian food division sales climbed to $48 billion in 2022-23, up more than 19%, 19% from a year earlier. This is the highest margin for groceries division recorded at Woolworths according to analysis over the past decade when its previous high-margin liquor business is stripped out of calculations. Former regulatory heads and economists have attributed the expansion in profit margins to a lack of competition in Australia, where Woolworths and Coles control two-thirds of the market. Yeah, free market. Yeah, yeah, right. The supermarkets flagged that while some good food prices were falling, such as cauliflower and iceberg lettuce... Many packaged goods along with dairy and bakery items are still rising. I'm sorry to laugh, but just this is no. unreal. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. And finally in headlines. Yesterday marked the final day of hearings in Victoria as part of the national inquiry into the ongoing rental crisis across the country. Throughout the month, Victorian renters shared their experience of the housing crisis in Parliament alongside testimony from Tenants Victoria and Metropolitan Councils. Wednesday's hearings heard evidence from a number of organisations including Better Renting, the Renters and Housing Union, the Community Housing Industry Association, Victorian Public Tenants Association, Assemble, Nightingale Housing, the RMIT Centre for Urban Research, the Federation of Community Legal Centres, Sweltering Cities, Councils of the Aged and the Housing of the Aged and Action Group. Full details of, of recommendations from the Inquiry Committee will be handed down in their final report due to be released by November 17th. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 24th of August. You're listening to 3CR. Need an extra layer for the cooler months? We've got great new long sleeve tops that proudly say Workers Radio. Available now online or at the station. Perfect for layering when you're out on the street. They'll have you picket line ready for winter. 
At $40, you'll get a great quality shirt, ethically and locally manufactured by Qualitops in Reservoir. Order now and we'll post one out for $8.50. Or you can pick it up from the station. Buy one online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Or come into the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. People are worth every bloody penny. I'm okay. We're spending money on the supports that we need. There's more than 400,000 people who should be on the DSP, but are on job seeker instead. I've got a life to live. I've got commitment. Like everybody has in society. The only way to provide meaningful support is stronger grassroots movements. These institutions are never going to be our saviour. If everyone was the same, it would be a born old world we live in. We need to do a lot of work in this country around shifting community attitudes towards people that don't fit the white, able, straight, cisgendered person. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. sold 578 hectares of public land to private developers. They're building private public partnership model housing over public housing land and it's just not on. Housing is just massively expensive. It's never been effective in this country to rely on the market to provide decent housing for people. Rent has risen by 21%. That's median rent across the country as of January this year. As the rents keep rising, so must we. And we must stand together as a collective because this war cannot be won by the few. It will only be victorious by the many. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are now joined by members of the Pacific Climate Warriors, Mary Masalina Harm and Guy Ratani, who join us to reflect on their campaigning for Pacific climate justice and a fossil free, fossil fuel free future within and outside of last week's Labor National Conference, which was held in Mianjin, Brisbane. Mary is a proud Samoan Chinese Fijian born in Canada and raised on Turbal Country, Brisbane, Australia. Passionate about the power of storytelling and creating social change, Mary enjoys working in multidisciplinary spaces, in particular with young people, to co-design initiatives and projects that are of value to them and their communities. Mary serves as the Pacific Climate Warriors Queensland Coordinator. Guy is a proud Takatapui Māori artist, climate justice and food system sovereignty advocate. Guy is passionate about our relationship to country, Fenua, and the role creativity and storytelling plays in overcoming our climate crisis. Good morning, Mary and Guy. Good morning. It's so good to have you both on um, today. And yeah, thanks for making the time. Um, I thought maybe we could start off by contextualizing both of your efforts within and outside of last week's Labor National Conference in relation to some key developments in the fight for climate action and justice by Pacific nations. So 
Earlier this year, ministers and officials from Vanuatu, Tuvalu, Tonga, Fiji, Nui, and the Solomon Islands had made a commitment to the Port Vila call for a just transition to a fossil fuel-free Pacific. So could you tell us a bit about this commitment and in particular the importance of a call for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty? Mary, I might go to you first and then Guy if you want to jump in. Thank you, Priya. Yeah, so the Port Vila resolution um, begins with the appalling fossil fuel-driven consequences of the Category 4 cyclones, two of them, that stroke um, Vanuatu within four days. Um, and the resolution is, in fact, a clear list of Pacific's demands on how we want to move towards a just transition to a fossil-free Pacific. Um, Pacific nations have been very clear from the get-go that Australia can only be a credible partner um, if it truly demonstrates what it looks like to be supportive of the Pacific's priorities on climate change. And there's probably four major proposals. One is a fossil fuel Pacific and a global just and equitable phase out of coal, oil and gas. Two, new Pacific tailored development pathways based on 100% renewable energy. Three, an expanded public and private finance for just transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy and redouble efforts to reaffirm, strengthen and um, strengthen the legal obligations um, that we have for global phase-out of fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And attached to each of those four proposals is a detailed list of how you can get there. And Australia is yet to tick off many of those, unfortunately. Yeah. Guy, did you want to jump in? Um so just to add to the end of that is around, I guess, from the outside track of how we are supporting that um, in here in Australia with uh, campaigns that are occurring on these soils. Um, so climate warriors in support of um, that poor villa have been campaigning um, on the pillars of uh, moving beyond coal. So what we can do here to support that um, non-proliferation treaty. Um, so the pillars of that are standing with First Nations people um, to ensure that we do have just and appropriate solutions moving forward. Um, obviously, keep coal in the ground. Um, it's a big problem that we have here in Australia and we continue to um, sanction and open new mines, which does not align at all uh, to that agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also not another dollar. So stop investing money into this and then we'll be able to move on and transition, um, which again is something that we're not seeing at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think uh, this call, uh, the Port Vila call, is a really important example of the expertise and leadership from Pacific Island nations on climate mm-hmm. justice and um, you know something that really needs to be taken up by a, a lot of the, the big heavy hitters in the in the climate emission space, of which Australia is one of the world leaders. So, Mary, last week you spoke on a panel at Labor's National Conference where the focus of the discussion was on the Australia-Pacific bid to host the 31st Conference of Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or COP31. So, given this disconnect between the staunch calls for climate action by Pacific climate warriors and the responses so far by successive Australian governments, including the Albanese government, I was hoping you could tell us a bit about what you discussed on the panel in terms of the implications of Australia hosting COP31. Yeah, thanks, Priya. I I guess I want to start on the point that you just made about the leadership that the Pacific is showing um, out of necessity um, towards climate change. You know, for too long, the Pacific has been viewed as and treated as a helpless victim of climate change. But we know, you know, from the depths of the Mariana Trench across the river systems of Viti Levu 
amongst the reef outside of my family village in Sasawa Sava'i and here on the banks of the Nianjin River, we know that Indigenous people continue to, by necessity, be the global leaders on climate change and climate action. Um, and so, yeah, on the panel, we discussed many positives and negatives um, to Australia hosting, but I think what was the, 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 um, I want to say the highlight, the most talked about was Australia needing to commit. There's, a, there's too much lip service. Mm. Um, and, you know, in many ways, Australia has an addiction to extraction and it continues to poison not only people of this country, but those across the globe. And it's time for Australia to heal its own doing and commit to the Port Villa resolution um, and become a credible partner because it is the Australia-Pacific bid to host. Yeah. Um, and I guess, sorry, for the positives in that is, you know, realistically, the Pacific don't have the infrastructure or the space to host a giant um, events such as COP. Um, and so by having it in Australia, it does give the Pacific the opportunity to show yet again our leadership in the space. But Australia needs to come on board and be a true climate leader. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that concerns have been raised about greenwashing in regards to the United Arab Emirates hosting COP28 in November and December of this year. So could you speak to how a Pacific partnership for COP31 might be made to work meaningfully in the interest of Pacific island nations and, yeah, in alignment with that Port Vila call because of those very you know clear concerns about how Australia might try to use this to launder its image without taking action? Got a great question, um, Priya. Um, yeah, we're at huge risk of greenwashing. I mean, COP31 and COPs in general are the third largest gathering in the world. So they bring a lot of people in, um, and they're also very expensive um, events to run for a government. And, um, you know, what we've seen in previous COPs is corporate sponsorship because we have these large corporations that are capable of footing the bill. Um, and that's no different here in Australia. There are a lot of um, organisations that are capable of coming in and paying for that that would not at all align to what it is that our climate goals are. So in terms of what a partnership looks like is in the three years leading up to this, we need to really campaign so that um, the movement and the expectations and accountability to the Australian government um, reflects what these demands are. Um, so again, as we said before around um you know, the the funding and the um, keeping coal in the ground and ensuring that we do have people power to develop meaningful relationships uh, with Pacific on the front lines and also diaspora communities. And this is a lot of intercultural literacy and a lot of um, understanding about how um, it's not just a an idea um, of, of mm. climate change. It's a very real reality that is... Um, engulfing the, the island homes and ancestral hands of our people. So I think there's a lot of work to be done around um, holding Australia accountable to what its commitments have been in the past um, and to recognising that um, with, in partnership with the Pacific, um, we have an opportunity to be global leaders and change the face of how climate action is actually viewed across the world. And I really hope that this is an opportunity for that, um, but there is a lot of accountability that um, Australia and the government um, needs to go through in the next three years if we are to do this with equity. Yeah, absolutely. And Mary, did you want to add any other reflections from, from being on that panel? I mean, I echo everything guys mentioned and and I think we, this is an opportunity, right? And I will just echo exactly what, he's, what they've been saying um, 
is an opportunity for Australia to get their house in order um, and and be the true climate champion that they need to be in order to host this event. Yeah, and I and I reckon as well, it can be an opportunity if Australia does not get its house in order um, for massive international scrutiny on Australia at the very least, considering, as you've mentioned, that many Pacific Island nations might not have the infrastructure to host this. So hosting here can then draw attention to, um, you know, hopefully... Hopefully we'll have seen some action by then, but potentially to any ongoing hypocrisy on the Australian government's part around climate justice. Um, so, Guy, during last week's conference, you also spoke at a rally outside the Brisbane Convention and Exhibition Centre where the Labor conference was held, and you joined other climate justice organisers to emphasise the need for a new strong federal policy platform targeting climate change. So can you tell us a bit about the key components of this platform? What are some of the main asks there? Yeah, thank you, Priya. Um, so our campaigning is grounded first and foremost in solidarity with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Um, for us and our, um, I guess, relationship to the oceans of Timuan and Nui Akiwa, the Pacific Ocean, um, to be truly recognised, Australia has to recognise its own people. And not only that, it has to rectify the um, issues and also recognise the custodianship that um, of climate leadership that already exists in this country. So first and foremost, it's about listening, uplifting and empowering uh, First Nations self-determination across Australia and implementing all of the recommendations and understandings of how to care for country here. Uh, so that's first and foremost. The second one is about the money. Um, again, you know, we had a huge win earlier this year with the um, non-funding investment of Whitehaven, um, a massive coal mine. Mm. Um, but ensuring that we have policy that restricts the expansion of um, financing fossil fuels, um, which is the, the, our main contribution, contribution to this issue. Um, and then lastly, of course, um, keeping all the coal in the ground. So not just not funding it, but also enshrining policy that ensures that we don't open new coal mines and don't continue to extract from country um, and emit more and more and export that as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, across uh, Thursday breakfast, we've had the privilege of speaking to um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander activists who've been talking about things like um, listening to First Nations expertise on, uh, you know, caring for country through burning, but also uh, talking about caring for country and movement and changing of kinship because of climate um, because of climate change effects in the Torres Strait, changing of kinship relations and drawing on kinship relations to, to move around and mitigate some of those effects. So I think that is such a crucial, um, crucial thing to, to foreground in this. Now, um, to both of you to wrap up, I was hoping that you might both reflect on the importance of building a broader movement for climate action that takes leadership from Pacific nations and from First Nations people here, um, as well as what the term climate justice means to you. So, Mary, I'll go to you first. Thanks, Priya. Um, look, I think I'm going to lean a little bit into some of our own Indigenous ways of being and knowing. And there's a, a Salmon proverb that says, And the Alamea is the crown of thorn starfish. And the proverb says that if you are to stand on the crown of thorn starfish, its prickly-like feet will inject a poison into your foot. But if you are to flip over the Alamea, its spongy-like feet on the back, if you press your foot against that, it will actually heal its own doing. And so we use this proverb to kind of demonstrate that the challenges that are faced by any community are best solved by that community. 
And that's what climate justice looks like to me. It looks like Indigenous-led. It looks like leaning into our Indigenous ways of being and knowing and using that, that knowledge from our old people to, to change the narrative of what our future will be like. Yeah, incredible. And Guy? Uh, thank you. And again, beautiful. I love that, um, Mary, every time you say that. Um, I think, you know, climate justice is, um, is, is a critical approach to how we, we move forward. Um, I think a huge misunderstanding is that climate change is the big issue. And actually, climate change is the predicament. The issue is mm-hmm. the cultural way of being that has resulted in climate change. And that's something that we need to address. So climate justice is not just environmental solutions, but it also addresses the systemic social inequalities that led to this in the first place. And when we look for solutions, we need to make sure that those solutions include uh, those um, socially equitable pathways forward. Otherwise, we just end up projecting the same systems and the same structures that got us in this situation in the first place. And I think it's really important for First Nations and Pacifica leaders to be listened to in this process um, and to demystify a lot of, I guess, how the Pacific is, is essentially wheeled out um, as a frontline community um, to the reality that the Pacific has led a whole lot of the um, policy and transformational change. I mean, the other reason we have 1.5 in the Paris Agreement, mm. they're hitting so much above their own weight in um in policy and advocacy and have led so many global conventions as to how we can move forward. And we need to start recognising that that comes from a fight for survival and it comes from a very real and lived experience of what solutions can be and what we can do. And I think for all of us living in cities and all of us not facing the front lines yet of of climate change, um, it will do us a huge amount of justice to listen to our leaders, both First Nations, Indigenous and Pacifica across the world. A hundred percent. And yeah, thank you both so much for for summing that up so well. Um, The importance of recognizing, you know, the leadership that has already been taken for decades now by the Pacific and the importance of uh, returning to ways of knowing and being in relation to the environment that are not, um, you know, based on colonial extractivism and um, the race for profit. Uh, Thank you, Guy and Mary, so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Priya. Thanks, Priya. And that was members of the Pacific Climate Warriors, Mary Masalina Harm and Guy Ratani, who joined us to reflect on their campaigning for Pacific climate justice and a fossil fuel-free future within and outside of last week's Labor National Conference, which was held in Mianjin, Brisbane. And you'll be able to find out more about the Pacific-led initiative for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty in our show notes. And we'll also have links to Pacific Climate Warriors' work. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. 
A treaty means equality and a treaty means justice. Thank you. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Connections interviews with food producers, backyard growers and urban farmers. Join us every Sunday morning at 10am on 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial, on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Local Food Connections, a show about the importance of local food in sustainable communities. From dust to dust, you gotta just trust that upper crust and maintain that good terrain from whence you came. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Salam be Hamegi. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. We're back with Jeff Just Yeah, okay. So next on Thursday Breakfast uh, and 3CR, we're speaking to Naomi Hodgson, um, founding member of Rising Tide, uh, part of the, the Movement for Civil Resistance for Climate Change, joins us to discuss Rising Tide's campaign, um, Disruption to End Climate Destruction. Morning, Naomi. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Okay, so tell us about Rising Tide. Yeah, so Rising Tide is a grassroots volunteer collective focused on building a mass civil resistance movement for climate defence. Um, we started in Newcastle, targeting the world's biggest coal port, and we are seeking 10,000 people to take a climate defence pledge and commit to participating in, in a peaceful, disruptive movement to demand the closure of the world's biggest coal port by 2030. Well, so that sounds... That sounds so, well, okay... Is that what you'll be discussing on the 30th um, at Trades Hall? Yeah, broadly. We're going to be discussing the climate crisis, its seriousness, and why we need this type of mass disruptive movement um, to respond to it in, in the face of ongoing inadequate policy responses by our governments. 
So we'll be discussing Rising Tide's theory of change um, and we'll be hearing from, um, um, very excitingly, we've um, got confirmation that um, Adam Bant, the um, Greens leader, will be speaking. Um, and we also have um, other, other great speakers, Tishiko King, who's a Kulka-leg cool woman from the Torres Strait and was a delegate to the COP27 um, UN climate um, talks. And Jeff Sparrow, who's an author and academic and Guardian columnist. Um, and Alexis Stewart, who is a 19-year-old um, rising tide act- activist who's been speaking at all our events that we've been travelling around um, putting on. So um, from those four speakers, we'll hear the different aspects of, like, why um, change is so necessary and why mass disruptive movements are the big gap in the response from the public at the moment and, um, yeah, why people need to get involved. And then specifically, um, we're going to be pitching um, our next mass national mobilisation, which is the People's Blockade of the World's Biggest Coal Port, which is coming up in November. So can you tell us a bit more about the rising tide theory of change? Yeah, so um, we are we use direct action as a key um, tactic and community organising. So um, our our theory is that we need mass numbers of people participating in disruptive action in order to be persuasive to the general public and to um, force governments to take action because it's clear that uh, they're not listening to the science, they're not listening to reason, um, and even when we vote in a government on a mandate of climate action that they're not going far enough, they're not taking the crisis seriously and um, they're not doing enough to prevent catastrophic impacts. So um, we, yeah, the the climate defence pledge that I mentioned earlier, that's a key part of our theory of change that um, if we can um, amass 10,000 people who are willing to participate in a peaceful, peacefully disruptive movement, then that is a type of scale um, that we need to force the change in the short amount of time that we have left. So um, we're looking for um, numbers, diversity um, and and unity of purpose um, focused on shutting down the world's largest coal port, which is 1% of global emissions. Wow. So, yeah, it's a That's huge massive. source of climate impact. Yeah, totally. It's, it's extraordinary. So um, all of those... All of the coal mines that um, are dug up on, like, Gomorrah, Wanarua, um, Waramaya, Wabikul land, shipped out of a Wabikul country, burnt all around the world, those climate impacts um, affect everybody. And, yeah, for one site on the East Coast, in a large progressive population centre and really accessible to other population centres on the East Coast, we think it's the ideal site to build a civil resistance movement and to to focus on that massive source of emissions and climate impacts and um, and demand the change that we need. So our first our first demand is no new coal because they're still approving massive new coal mines um, to feed the coal export port and and elsewhere. So the first the first step is stop approving new mines um, and then shut down the coal port by 2030. And, and then obviously we're also demanding that this is done in a, a just and fair way and that workers and communities are supported properly through the process um, and, and given um, good new jobs in sustainable industries. 
look, that what 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 you've just described is an amazing like the, your goals are fantastic. The other, I, I just I was reflecting on these questions um, the other day, and I was like, I was just thinking about how the the attempt to to uh, in, impose a climate tax on. So, are you ready for the attacks from the other side? Like how? How, yeah, yeah, I guess like the, the establishment sort of, you know, vested interests are really, that, do you, are you, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm asking what, are you ready for that, for them to come after you guys? Mm, I mean, I think that that will, it is inevitable and it will come in various forms. And, uh, yeah, I think that we're ready for the, um, rhetorical attack because we know that we're right. We have science on our side. Um, there's, there's just no escaping like the the climate the rolling climate catastrophes and the escalating climate disasters that we're already seeing occur that is going to keep escalating and become more and more obvious to everybody the situation is becoming desperate so um, what we're doing is a is a rational and commensurate response um, in the context of um, very few other commensurate commensurate responses so life is really just continuing mostly as normal um, as we're hurtling towards climate collapse and we are um, taking action that is um, yeah is necessary so um, we know that rhetoric like our reasons are sound um, and we know that the government can like has the resources to support um, the communities through the transition like environmentalists um, activists have been calling for a just transition for 20 years um, and the government hasn't listened to that. They've continued to double down on um, fossil fuels and entrench reliance on those industries. Um, and and now time is short. Um, the transition won't be as smooth probably as it could have otherwise been if we had planned better, but still it can be done in a just way. It just needs to be prioritised. Um, so, yeah, I think we feel confident that um, we're ready for, for rhetorical attacks, um, political attacks, Um the repression that is likely to come. Um, our plan there is that we need the, the numbers and diversity and the, um, the social connection throughout, broadly throughout the community um, in order to withstand um, the repression that is inevitable. Because if we, if we have the numbers and diversity and the worthiness for, of um, different types of people throughout the community that are, are well-respected, um, then... It's going to be a lot easier, a lot more difficult to marginalise us and repress us and ignore us. People will know when we're being repressed. If one of us goes to jail, when there's um, 10,000 10, of us standing together, then everybody will feel that that um, is an attack on them and it will ripple throughout society rather than um, being more easy to ignore. Okay. Yeah. So, how important is direct action for developing, um, for for maintaining a campaign and developing, you know, a head of steam for a campaign like this? Yeah, it's absolutely critical. It's it's central to our theory of change um, in terms of building momentum and numbers. Um, it like nonviolent direct action can force issues um, and conflict into the public sphere and into public and private conversations, and um, done well. It dramatises um, these conflicts and issues in a way that tells a story that the media wants to report and that clearly and coherently describes who the villains are um, and the victims and the heroes. And um, we know that the villains are the billionaires and the um, 
coal and gas CEOs and there's actually like there's not that many of them and um, and we have to be really clear and focused that um, they are the ones that are destroying the planet and um, and so that's what we're aiming to do with our with our actions is like really focus on um, who is causing the crisis and um, and and bring attention there so it's it's extremely difficult to do without um, direct action like marching like rallies have their place um, but it's just not possible to to do them on a scale that gets attention often enough we need to build up momentum again um, and learning from history we know that that civil resistance and um, direct action have been used strategically to win against the odds in issues like the U- US civil rights and of the suffragettes with women's right to vote and in Australia like um, epic environmental victories like the campaign to protect the Franklin River and yeah. um, the Bentley blockade and the whole Northern Rivers coal seam gas um, efforts that were extraordinary and and used NVDA as a central part of their strategy. Mate, so yeah, so please, um, Naomi, tell us. Can you please, yeah, um, yeah, remind us about what's happening on the thirtieth? Because just just to wrap up, please. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Wednesday, August thirtieth, we're having a forum, hearing from Adam Bant, Tishika King, Jeff Sparrow, and Alexa Stewart from Rising Tide. Um, it's at the Trade Hall in Carlton, um, starting at six o'clock. Um, yeah, we'd love to see heaps of people there so that everyone can come along and, and learn a lot more about um, the upcoming People's Blockade of the world's largest coal port from the 24th to 27th of November. Um, so, yeah, go to our, um, our website, risingtide.org.au, to find out um, further information about both the, um, the forum at Trades Hall on the 30th um, and the People's Blockade that's in Newcastle in November. Naomi, thanks for making the time to come on this morning um, and all the best with the campaign. Um, yeah, so thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Spike. No worries. We just heard from Naomi Hodgson, a founding member of the Rising Tide Movement of Civil Resistance for Climate Defence, who joined us to discuss Rising Tide's campaign, Disruption to End the Climate Destruction. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. Food Connections interviews with food producers, backyard growers and urban farmers. Join us every Sunday morning at 10am on 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial, on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming 
on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Local Food Connections, a show about the importance of local food in sustainable communities. Here we go from dust to dust, gotta just trust that upper crust and maintain that good terrain from whence you came. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.47 in the morning, and we are joined now by Jay Coonan from Anti-Poverty Centre and anti-poverty advocate Alex in the studio to unpack the Centre's recently released report, Punishment for Profit, How Private Providers Became the Only Winners in Australia's Cruel Employment Services System, which was published with support from GetUp last week. This report, co-authored by Jay and Kristen O'Connell and incorporating the lived experience of uh, the lived expertise as well of contributors, including Alex, presents a critical analysis of the use of, quote, mutual obligations, end quote, in Australia's social security system. Jay and Alex will be speaking about the rationale behind impacts of and expenditure on employment services providers, as well as the structural changes required to center the dignity, agency and well-being of people living below the poverty line. As always, when I have Jay or Kristen on, disclaimer, 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 I am also a member of the Anti-Poverty Centre. Um, so it is just a privilege to be able to have you both on and um, joining me to talk about this report. So thank you very much, Jay and Alex. No, thank you. Thank you. That was, uh, a, that was a long intro. Thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's, a, it's a substantial report and... Um, of course, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you uh, both on to talk about this is because I think it needs so much more coverage than it's getting. Um, you know, we hear, we've heard for years, um, you know, anecdotal evidence, which I think is still substantial evidence from people that have been self-advocating after engaging with this really punitive system. Um, but collecting it all together, I think, provides quite a significant impact, especially in the world of uh, evidence-based policymaking. Um, so, Jay, to begin with, I was hoping that you could tell us about the origins of the welfare-to-work argument that underpins today's pretty normalized regime of, quote, mutual uh, obligations, end quote, yeah. in Australia's social security system. And I'm really interested in this notion of behavioral economics that might seem to provide this regime with an inflated image of almost scientific validity. Yeah, well, so to start, the the uh, welfare-to-work w- uh, policies were, you know, Howard-era construction, so they came about in the mid-2000s. But before that, they were kind of constructed through uh, the Australian Institute for Family Studies, which is a government-related kind of uh, institution. Um, and the, the purpose behind them was basically how do we mobilise enough people, particularly women as well, because there were a lot of childcare reforms during that period too, to get into the workforce, and it was pretty much just like a, you know, a no, you know, they were just taking uh, no hostages and just finding ways to uh, push people into work. Um, and but that itself was the Australian construction of that. This kind of all came about in the 1980s and 19, early 1990s with you know liberal economic reforms. Um, and the the first incarnation of uh, mutual obligations weren't uh, well. Not by name, uh, because that was in '97 with the Howard government. But the first kind of like compulsory uh, work tests came around with the uh, Hawke government in the like the late '80s, and and then again some more uh, changes in '94 with uh, the Keating government as well. So that's kind of like the welfare to work side of that. And then the other thing that's kind of popped up now as well is behavioural economics, which is basically how do we engineer people to make the decisions themselves to 
get into work. So what it all it's doing is kind of like, you know, individualizing the issues of poverty and unemployment on the individual rather than looking at it as a, you know, a social construct or even, you know, an economic construct because unemployment is inbuilt into our economic system to prevent inflation. And well, that's not really going too well for them now at the moment. But still, even though that they're presented with, you know, the fact that their the theories and whatnot are basically bunkers, they're still pursuing with that to this day. Yeah, and I think something important to emphasize here, um, you know, with the historical trajectory that you've provided is that this is not necessarily um, one political party or another. This is yeah. more of a broader uh, economic consensus uh, on, I guess, taking this approach towards people who require this a, a robust social safety net to mm. survive. Um, so you and Kristen, along with many other anti-poverty activists, have spent a really long time drawing attention to the harmful experiences of these, quote, mutual obligations, end quote, by people subjected to these conditions. And this is clearly documented at scale in the report. But something that I'm very keen to hear about is the extent to which the various data that you drew on for the report spoke to the success of this system through the employment services model. So Given the amount of money that's spent on employment services by the federal government, how successful have they been in achieving transitions from welfare to work? Yeah, well, I suppose that they would argue that they they have been successful. But, you know, if if I were to engineer a, a system like they have to put people into work, I would find ways to get those outcomes. But so to them, they think it's working. But, you know, when we looked at it, particularly from the survey that we've done, uh, you know, only I think it was about like 2% or 8 people out of 111 were actually found a job through a job agency. Whereas, you know, the majority of people, when they do find work, they find it on their own accord. They find volunteering. They do everything themselves. Rather, the the job agencies there are just kind of there to whip them up into shape. So, yeah, it, it it's, you know, hard to quantify uh on their end, uh, because they just do it based on outcomes. And even if you get a job and then you re- tell Centrelink that you've got a job, that outcome payment will go to the job agency and then they will record that as having got a job, right? So it's hard to say. So we know that employers uh, don't use this system because a government report told us that employers don't use this system. It's like it's dropped off from the beginning of like the early 2000s to you know, 2018 or something. It's like below you know, 7% or something like that from memory. So employers don't use this system. People don't use this system to get jobs. And what we know is that a very small amount of people are actually using this system to get jobs. So, you know, I'd I'd say uh, I'm a bit biased here, but I'd say, you know, probably our findings are more accurate than uh, some of the the things that the government puts out. Yeah, I mean, it does seem to paint a picture of people uh, when they do find employment, finding it in spite of these services rather than because of them. Now, Alex, I'd like to go to you here and was wondering if you'd like to share any reflections on your experiences of mutual obligations because you shared some of those um, through the report. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, thank you. One of the things that I um, like to bring up is my first ever time that I went to an employment services provider. Um, I was sort of like really new to it and unsure how the system worked. And so I was asking them a lot of questions about how, you know, like, how do I do this? How do I do that? And one of the questions that I asked was um, being disabled. I said, uh, you know, what if there's not enough suitable jobs for me to apply for um, so that I can meet, you know, their quota and therefore not get cut off my payments? And the um, employment provider that I was with uh, straight up just told me, uh, apply for random jobs. Um, so just, you know, pick random things and put them on there. 
Um, but then, you know, if they, if any of those jobs have contacted me and actually wanted me to work there, I would then have to go back and argue with them, uh, the provider on and Centrelink, on why I couldn't actually do that job and mm. why that job was not suitable for me. Um, so there's a lot of time wasting, I feel, going on. People could be uh, spending their time, you know, uh, putting effort into, uh, you know, their medical care or actually upskilling to get a, you know, the sort of job that they want. But instead, we're having to stuff around with this system that really just doesn't work at all. Yeah. And I mean, this is sort of compounded by, uh, you know, by things like, restricted access to the, to the disability support pension and um, also by the the immense costs that are associated with being disabled, like the amount of money that people have to spend to um, engage in all of these systems in the first place and then the energy and time cost that goes into that as well. So, uh, Jay, back to you. The House of Representatives Select Committee on Workforce Australia's Employment Services is currently undertaking an inquiry into these services, and it's due to report later this year. It was meant to be September, now it's November. As part of your report, you reviewed submissions to that inquiry, and you found that the majority of those that did express a position on making participation in employment services voluntary supported doing so. But I know the term voluntary is pretty contested in the social security policy space, so could you speak to that, um, the meaning of that word and how it gets invoked? Yeah, so I think I'll just quickly start with the use of the word voluntary in the current Labor government is uh, when the uh, new government, well, sorry, when the Labor government was uh, during the election period, they were talking about how they were going to make the cashless welfare card voluntary. As soon as they came into government, basically what we've seen is that it's not voluntary. They've just kind of peeled it back in some areas and they've maintained the income management kind of infrastructure. And what they've done now is kind of just condense the legislation and have given themselves and future governments the power to expand that. And that's their concept of voluntary or so we're led to believe. So when uh, terms like voluntary are being used at the moment, it, we're obviously going to meet them with a lot of you know, scepticism, particularly around this system. Uh, as a part of the workforce inquiry, uh, they ran an inquiry into the, uh, you know, the pre-employment, uh, quotation marks, uh, program called Parents Next for you know, mainly single mothers uh, to you know, get ready for work. That's the concept. They have you. They have decided that they're going to make that voluntary. But when they've said voluntary, what we're expecting is that there's still going to be a compulsory, even if it's just the first appointment, a, a compulsory first appointment. So they are using these words to kind of placate a lot of advocates, uh, not ourselves because we're far more sceptical than a lot of other people. But so when they're using that, particularly in this system, it's we're just not sure how it's going to play out, and it, you know it needs to be met with a lot of you know skepticism I'd say. Yeah and I mean from my own um, past work campaigning against the cashless debit card with the Accountable Income Management Network I feel like um, there's been you know the employment of uh, particular terms like voluntary like consultation um, that actually present uh, I guess I guess put much more of a democratic kind of um, and, and participative kind of veneer over these kinds of policies when, in fact, yeah. um, the underlying rationale of welfare to work is retained as well as uh, this, you know, this approach to uh, towards making people really have to have to earn it, have to. Uh, but earning oh, yeah. being very specific. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And. 
So I guess I wanted to go to, um, you know, the significant feature of the reports that I think might not get as much attention as its findings. And this is the methodology uh, employed in conducting this research. So um, what did you do to try and integrate the expertise and needs of people in poverty into this research from the start? And why do you think this is so important? Yeah, well, the the anti-poverty center was, is you know formed by people on payments uh, for people on social security payments, and you know the, the concept behind everything that we do is that we need to kind of democratize things, uh, particularly social welfare programs, and bring it back into the community. So that's kind of like the the method of this report is obviously uh, obviously for those who don't know <laughs> the survey that we ran uh, brought in around six hundred people who have recent or current experience with employment services and payments. And also um, we ran three workshops in Melbourne, Sydney and Adelaide uh, to basically have people talk about what they want from a system that should be for them. And uh, a lot of the recommendations that we got from that are pretty basic things which are not covered uh, in a lot of, you know, other professional advocate or other services. And that's, you know, pretty much like a livable income and, you know, no mutual obligations and housing, you know, just core basic you know, material things that people need in order to get by. And, you know, uh, the thing is, like, you know, people don't really need to be pushed into work. And that's, the you know, one of the other things that we've found. And the whole narrative therapy behind that is well, not narrative therapy, like the narrative methodology is to have people talk about their, you know, their situations, what, they, what they're thinking, what they're feeling in a non, uh, you know, confrontational way, but in order to, like, kind of tease out some of those things to you know, take back control when these systems are designed to strip people of their control. So, yeah, I guess that's one way of going about it. Yeah, absolutely. And Alex, I'd like to go back to you here because uh, I, I'd, I'd be keen to hear about how you felt about contributing your lived expertise to this report and um, about collaborating with other people who shared similar experiences of harm. So how, how was this contribution like for you and what made you want to get involved? Um, that's a really good question one thing that i really like about the anti-poverty center is that they do include people who are actually on welfare payments and not just other advocates but just your normal run-of-the-mill people who want to have a say and share their experiences um and have their voice heard um sort of everyone in the room had a similar sort of story we all came from different backgrounds and had different reasons for being there but all, everyone had the same core ideal of just not wanting to be pushed around by the system not wanting to have to go through these punitive measures and sort of live in fear constantly that you know if you step one foot out of line that your job provider will you know cut off your payments or you know um i think they have the um the system of, uh, Jay, help me out here. What's the marks that you get? Oh, the uh, demerits? Yeah, yeah, so you can get demerits if you um, do something that they, you know, deem to be incorrect. It can be as simple as um, applying for a job that they think, you know, is not suitable for you. Um, not showing up to an appointment when most of the time they only tell you about your appointment the day before. Uh, or you know, call you two hours late when, you know, you maybe had something to do at that particular t point in time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's just hard. It really puts people in a state of 
fear and depression and that's not a healthy area for people to be coming from in terms of looking for work and looking positively towards the future, trying to upskill, trying to do the right thing, you know, that the government sort of wants them to be doing. But I think that a lot of us just aren't even in a mindset that's capable of doing that when we're um, put under this system. It's really just all about surviving and, you know, getting through each week. Yeah. And actually, Alex, I did want to hear maybe a bit more if you're if you're comfortable with sharing it about reflections on how this, um, you know, this punitive system of conditionality um, and, you know, requirements to have, um, you know, X amount of job searches conducted um, meets, you know, real issues of accessibility and of disability justice as well, if you wanted to speak to that. Yeah, so that's something that I particularly usually work on um, with the Anti-Poverty Centre. Um, I went alongside them to speak at the Disability Royal Commission hearing into um, the DSP. Um, it just doesn't work at all. Um, it's something I've said for a long time. Um, the providers, um, even though you may get into DMS or DES, Disability Employment Services, they don't know anything about disabilities. They're not trained in any way. They're just normal people and they don't understand at all. Um, I I think my lowest ever amount of jobs I had to apply for was 10. And if you genuinely go out there and look, there is physically not 10 jobs that I would be capable of actually genuinely doing. Um, I think a lot of people actually do want to try. They want a job. They want this support. Um, but it's just not there for them. And there's no room for that in Centrelink's eyes. A lot of us are told, um, you know, sort of either get a job or get on the DSP right now. But that's not how it works. Mm. It took me over five years um, of fighting with the medical system and struggling with the medical system to get the DSP. Mm. I only got DSP earlier this year. Um, I jumped for joy and lost my mind when I find, found out that I would no longer have mutual obligations mm -hmm. since people under 35 on DSP can still have mutual obligations. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's just too many of us. Like, if you look at the numbers in the report, I think that's one of the really stark things that I, quite frankly, was happy to see because it's something that we all sort of know, but it's never put into numbers, mm -hmm. uh, that the amount of people uh, in these job service providers and on JobSeeker in general uh, for people with disability is very high because of the fact that it is so extremely hard to get onto the DSP um, and therefore... Uh, you know, have any sort of real meaningful um, help from these people. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, those concerns about a, a complete lack of attention to access, accessibility, but also job availability um, really, I guess, raises some questions um, about how this how this model continues going forwards. Um, you know, now that we know what we know, and many people have known it for a very long time, um, Jay, I'm wondering what you think might change considering one of the recommendations in the report is returning, um, you know, the provision of these kinds of services, albeit in a different form, um, into the into public hands. 
Yeah. <clears throat> so we we do while we do call for it to be returned into public hands, like you know, you do run the risk that the same you know punishment system will remain in place. So it's like if you're gonna like yeah, get it, take it away from the private providers. Stop like billion people. Stop the system turning people into billionaires. Like you know, let's let's just take it back into public hands. But also at the same time, let's actually make it something for the community, run by the community, actually supports and fosters community rather than just like isolating people, whether they have a disability, whether they're single parents, whether you know they're you know the older people as well. Like, bring it back into public hands, and that's we're not really getting a lot of those signals. When they first started the inquiry, the the chair Julian Hill was quite bolshy in some of the language um and you know a lot of people were like oh this is interesting but you know as time has gone on a lot of that language has turned into you know people need to kick up the bum and that's a direct quote like so you know the, the chair of this system who is going to oversee this report believes that there should be some form of you know mutual obligation or you know conditionality in place so we don't really hold much hope that this is going to be some dramatic uh change and shift in the system so even though that you know there are some good signals uh there is it's just not even anywhere near close to actually being you know offering relief or to think that we need to stop campaigning and that's what this report kind of like focuses on that we need to keep going and we need to keep hitting them until we can get what we want Mm, and i think something we haven't even touched on uh in, in this conversation so far is that there's also um a lack of alignment between the way these services operate and the skill sets people do have and also their aspirations for what they want to do. So even this question of uh, desire and agency um, that is wrapped up in broader considerations of dignity and well-being um, is completely sidestepped in, in these conversations too. Uh, now, Alex, I was wondering if you had any messages for policymakers or people who've never had to interface with the social security system about this system of, quote, mutual obligations, end quote. Uh, something that I've said before is that um, I really just want people to listen and take us seriously. I find that a lot of people uh, would rather just not pay attention to it at all. And at the end of the day, these policymakers, they listen to us and they go home, but they get to go home to a world outside of that. But for this, for us, this is our life every single day and we don't get to, you know, just go home and forget about it. And I just want people to truly pay attention to what's going on um because it is really hard um i don't know yeah i don't know it's about time they kind of just listened and you know kind of took cues from the people as you said like you know we don't just get to go home and turn off so we really need to take control of that to you know actually have something to go home to yeah 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 and i think this idea um that policymakers can sort of tap out and tap in to these conversations as you know as they feel like it um also then plays into such a objectification as well of people that are experiencing poverty where um there is uh there's a selective engagement uh, based on whether, you know, it looks like there needs to be uh, some visible action on the cost of living crisis, for example, rather than actually engaging with the analysis that people going through these experiences have of their own situations and what needs to change. 
Now, Anti-Poverty Center is running a survey on uh, this system of, quote, mutual obligations, end quote. So can you tell us, uh, Jay, about this and how listeners can fill it out if they're eligible? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, you can also read the report and check out our cool little microsite that we've released alongside that, which has a bunch of information um, and, can- you know, information and campaign material. So including the survey, which is at punishmentforprofit.org. Uh, um, and that also links to our website and our socials as well. So, yeah, it's all the one-stop shop at uh, punishmentforprofit.org. Awesome. And so the survey is continuing and you're just continuing to collect information on this? Yeah, yeah. So um, from the 600 for the the report, we're also, you know, uh, running a new one. And so far, we've had a lot of really good engagement. So um, and, you know, more people who didn't engage with the last survey signing up as well. So uh, that's really promising. So if you, you know, haven't heard of us or, you know, you're interested in some of the work we do, still go and check it out. Um, But if you can, if you want to fill out the survey as well to let us know your experience, experiences then please go wild yes absolutely and anything um anything you want to say before we wrap up alex i don't know so many things (laughs) things. (laughs) um i guess just thank you to the anti-poverty center for doing this work i feel like they filled a gap that really needed to be filled where there were so many people that haven't actually experienced what we go through trying to talk about and make decisions about our lives. And it's really good to have people that have actually experienced this uh, being able to have a say and uh, have their voices heard because nobody understands it more than we do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and it, it really comes back to centering uh, agency and self-determination and dignity in these discussions, which I think is something that this report does really well and is something that is really marginalized from mainstream policy discussions about social security. So, Jay and Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. No, thank, thank you for having us. Yeah, and that was uh, Jay Coonan from Anti-Poverty Center and anti-poverty advocate Alex joining us in studio to unpack the center's recently released report, Punishment for Profit, How Private Providers Became the Only Winners in Australia's Cruel Employment Services System. And we'll have all the information about how you can read that report and also fill out the mutual obligations survey that's ongoing on our show notes. But for now, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6 p.m. Tuesdays. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijoma Umbinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community Radio.
Uh, and we're back, and we have Australian Service Australian Services Union member and Brotherhood of St Lawrence employee Alex Kakafikas, who uh, he's going to speak to us um, about their industrial action. How are yeah. you going, Alex? I'm um, great. Um, thanks for having us on. Thanks for um, listening to us about what's going on down at the Brotherhood, and it's good to be in here as a as a not as a broadcaster. I do a show on three CR awesome. as well, so uh, it's good to be here. All right, mate. So tell us, tell us. So who's a brotherhood? Who mm. is a brotherhood of St. La- brotherhood of St. Lawrence? My brotherhood of St. Lawrence is a social services organisation that specifically deals with issues of poverty in Australia. It's been around since the 1930s. It was sort of created in Fitzroy, in Collingwood area, um, then by uh, the kind of very famous Father Tucker. Who, if you work there, you'll hear a lot about. Um, and working with the communities here back then. And has been in yeah mainly in Victoria ever since. So they're not for profit, yeah. They're yeah, not for profit. Yeah, that's okay. right. So and you're with the ASU. So what sort of roles do unionists perform at the BSL? Well, at the majority, we do all sorts of things, but the majority of the union membership is in the NDIS space and in um, aged care. Um, so they kind of frontline people organising care, but also some people working in aged care facilities directly as well. We have one in Clifton Hill and down in um, Caram Downs and the people directly working with older people. All right, man. So what, what do you got? What's the, uh, the employees at, B, at BSL asking for? And what have the BSL offered? We've been um, in an enterprise agreement period since last year. Um, and we've sort of um, been negotiating over wages and conditions. Right now, as much as we've compromised, right now what we're asking for is a um, price, uh, sorry, a wage increase along um, CPI numbers for March in Melbourne. In uh, so that's about six point seven percent. Brotherhood has offered two point seven five percent. But then on top of that, the 3% above award, which is in the EA, we have to be th- always 3% above the award. So their offer is about 5.7%. So there's a gap of about 1% um, between what we're asking for and what they're offering. Um, we've been asking for extra conditions to be included in the EA, which they have um, started. They have come and, and improved their offer on that. They've included more reproductive leave um, other form and other entitlements as well that they're including in the EA, which they didn't before. We'd famously uh, voted down the first agreement, which hadn't happened before at the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence. We voted that down in May. So what, and what the, 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 um, the vote in favor of the strike or for, uh, which is what I found was really interesting was like 64% of workers. Well, sorry, that, that was to vote against ratifying the EA. Okay. We had a vote to get bring the um go begin a campaign of industrial action i think in in April um and then they brought forward that vote and we voted it down by yeah, by sixty four percent so what's the sticking point so what why what what isn't why aren't they are they giving you any indication as to why they won't um give you what you what you're asking for well they've they've fam- they've stated that they can't change the pay offer this year because of um the print the the kind of financial principles of the board that they don't want to be dipping into other um, resources in the organisation. They have an $82 million accumulated surplus that they won't touch. Not all of that is cash, of course, but there's other form that some of these are income generating. We know they have significant equity holdings. Um, We know they have other 
um, resources that they can, discretionary funding that they could reach in and use to sort of help us with this once in a generation um, cost of living crisis that we're all living through. And um, we're asking that we don't sub- be the people who um, subsidise any sorts of like surpluses or stuff like that. We all through the pandemic, all we heard about was frontline workers are essential, yeah. they're important, yeah. and we're just asking for the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence to live up to that. Man, so how important... So we were just speaking to Naomi Hodgson from Rising Tide and talking about the importance of direct action. How important is direct action to achieving um, collective goals? Well, they would never have offered any of the improvements that they have to the EA in terms of conditions um, without industrial action and without the industrial campaign that we began. Um, And they wouldn't have... And I should correct, though, that they have, in the third year of our agreement, offered 0.5% increase which is sort of um being sort of sort of we don't consider a very serious one considering that the ndis contract ends before the end of that um it's many staff might not even see that so it's sort of an empty gesture we feel we feel like that the first year should be right now now that we're living in a cost of living um crisis um that we should be seeing some we should be seeing that increase to the pay in the first year. And so how have the BSL been to negotiate with Alex? They've treated it like a consultation process mainly. Um, That was my feeling. They're not used to having a union exert power um, and they've sort of struggled with that. Um, But um, they were sort of hands-off about industrial material, uh, campaign material in offices and that. Some offices took them down, but that was usually individuals doing that rather than a policy. But since we started taking industrial action, the first day-long strike was in at the start of August. And since then, there have been a lot more kind of hands-on in removing campaign materials, definitely in head office where I work. That's fa- that's fascinating. So you people were take people in the office are taking down posters and information. Mm, yeah, um, certain ma- certain yeah people were not not individuals off their own bat but just sort of on instructions from oh okay and, so yeah. that that might leads into my next question about so not-for-profits not-for-profit i guess faith-based organizations mm. and um that i think for like i guess um community health I think it's a lot more difficult space to to organise mm. because of, because of the nature of the work. Mm. They very much trade on the goodwill of the staff. They know we're dedicated. They know we care about our work. We're, as I'm, I'm saying, we're, we're not car workers in the 1970s. Like this is like we we work with clients who um, we have a personal connection with our work in that way, um, and we're not going to take action that harms them in any way we haven't done any of anything like that since even though they tried to have in this industrial action ended on that basis that it would harm client delivery but it, it has we we're certain that it hasn't and we're certain that clients also understand that this is an important issue so this is the first the first time ever 90, 93 years that people have taken direct you should be really proud man we really are we've yeah. um grown massively in this time um it's the first time that yeah we've knocked back an ea but it's also the first time we've taken strike action as well um it's been a kind of great experience and um we have a rally today and we really would like to spruik and get people to come down to it uh, today at twelve thirty at 67 brunswick street fitzroy that's in a city so we really would like to see union members from the cbd and inner city come in but also community members and not just from the inner city from outside of course but it's 
quite close to a lot of things, so come down on your lunch break and um, get, show us your support. So how has so you you did has the union grown in in this in during the sort of action massively like in membership? Yeah, yeah massively. So what, what, how, what are the numbers like? Uh, I can't give exact numbers, but it's I can tell you that it's um, massive increase. It's doubled. Man, that's that's really like I think like I think yeah as I, as I was saying earlier I think it's a really difficult space to work in when it comes mm. to industrial action because of the nature of the work mm. but yeah I think it's really important f- for whatever it's worth that yeah. this happens the other so how how can people support the, what are the plans for the campaign so w- what stage is it now no. well, right now we're um, we're having the rally today and we. The great way to show you, so everyone to show their support is to come down at 12.30 at 67 Brunswick Street. Um, we'll be setting up uh, – we're in the process of setting up a strike fund too. Um, we'll have those details out shortly. We'll share it through 3CR and other other sources, um, and you can help support uh, people who might be losing out on wages due to industrial action there. Is there any other way that people can get behind? Uh, you can um, – Follow, yeah, follow the campaign. Um, we'll is it on get, Facebook? Is it on social? We, uh, the ASU page would be okay. a good place to follow that. Um, but as I said, I think this will be – we have more things coming up that we can't quite disclose right now, but uh, we'll, we'll definitely do that. For definitely further industrial action, that's for sure. So, like, is there a time limit on this? Like, how – yeah, like, how does this work? Right now, now? well, it depends on – there's other factors in this, but we can't um, – yeah, we can't give really a timeline. The um, BSL, Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, have sort of stopped um, making offers to us and we haven't had a meeting for a little while, um, so we're waiting to get back to that stage and we're hoping that industrial action forces them back to negotiation. So you're, you're hoping that the... Indu- well, yeah, hoping the industrial action brings them back to the table, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, all the best. Thank um, you so much. With the Savo and your future plans, man. I hope you guys are successful because, you know, it's hard to provide support to people when you're living in poverty yourself. Yeah. But, you know, like that's the bottom line. Yeah. yeah, we've definitely seen that. We've got members who are working part-time from single-parent families. They're really struggling right now and this is sort of as much about them as everyone. Um, we want to thank 3CR for having us on and thank that we. it's great that we have – sort of activist media spaces to sort of get this information out there independently of um, corporate sort of media. Yeah, it reminds us how important community radio is. And, Definitely. That, you know, we don't have to worry about offending sort of, you know, um, uh, commercial interests and stuff like yep, that, yeah? exactly. Yeah, so thanks for coming on, Alex. Thank you so much. No problem. Ooh. Do you want me to back? Yeah. Yeah, that was um, Alex Kakaf. Vikas from um, the ASU discussing um, the industrial action um, and the public meeting, oh, the rally this afternoon um, in Fitzroy. Yeah, and we'll include information about that on our show notes. It is just coming up to 25 past eight. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. 
You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Annika Swall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Accent of Women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. And we're back on 3CR 855 AM. We have had a great show today and we're just going to remind you on of what we had on. So first up, we had members of the Pacific Climate Warriors, Mary Masalina Harm and Guy Ratani, join us to reflect on their campaigning for Pacific climate justice and fossil-free future within and outside of last week's Labor National Conference, which was held in Mianjin, Brisbane. Mary is a proud Samoan, Fijian-born in Canada and raised on Turbul Country, Brisbane, Australia, and who is passionate about the power of storytelling in creating social change. Mary serves as the Pacific Climate Warriors Queensland Coordinator, and Guy Ritani is a proud Tatakapui Maori artist, climate justice and food system sovereignty advocate, and Guy is passionate about our relationship to country, and the role of creativity and storytelling in overcoming our climate crisis. Uh, and we also had Naomi Hodgson, um, the founding member of Rising Tide, Movement for Civil Resistance for Climate Change, who joined us to discuss the disruption to end climate destruction. And then we heard from Jay Coonan from Anti-Poverty Centre and Anti-Poverty Centre Alex, who joined us to unpack the centre's recently released point Report Punishment for Profit, How Private Providers Became the Only Winners in Australia's Cruel Employment Services System. And finally, we had Australian Services Union member uh, Alex Kakafikas to discuss the, brotherhood, um, the campaign of the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence. Um, and to, yeah, if you can be there this afternoon, um, yeah, at 67 Brunswick Street. And that's all we have for you today on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Have a great week, everyone. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.